Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Secorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We are here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I'm Jen, and with me are Mark. Hello, everybody. And Bob. Good evening. And tonight we're going to talk about Attack from Atlantis by Lester Del Rey. Now, admittedly, this one isn't directly taken from Appendix N, but there is a direct tie-in to our last episode. So, uh, Bob, tell us a little bit about this one. At age 17, Don Miller is already an accomplished electronics technician, helping his uncle, Dr. Edward Simpson, with the testing of a new kind of submarine, the Triton One. Accompanied everywhere by his dog, Shep, he is aboard the boat for its sea trials. The test run is successful, in spite of some problems with the control systems and stress on certain crew members, that has made them believe that they have seen, on the television screens that give a view of the outside of the submarine, men encased in form-fitting bubbles. For the test run, the Triton descends into the Milwaukee Deep, north of Puerto Rico, and as they descend they find that they are losing control of the boat, and further that they're being rammed by a whale. Unable to maneuver, they come down on the undersea plateau, 1,200 fathoms, 7,200 feet below the surface. When the bubble men attack openly in full force, cementing rocks to Triton's hull, they drive her down to the bottom. Three miles below the surface, they come to a town of about 20,000 people that they call Atlantis. Lying under a larger version of the bubbles that enclose the people surrounding the submarine. The Atlanteans take their crew captive. Can they free themselves and save the surface world? Wow, that's that's a bit of a full summary. <laughs> More so than usual. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know, I I kinda like this one. What did you guys think? I loved this one. I absolutely adored this one. It it's got kind of that Tom Swift early young adult or teen fiction feel. And uh, Del Rey is fantastic. I mean, he published his first short story in 1938. He's a SFWA grandmaster. And admittedly, we picked this one because of the lovely write-up on him and how he panned Jack of Shadows, our last book. (laughs) (laughs) It was worth getting another point of view from the actual person who did that. So, yeah. Yes, the man that panned Jack of Shadows. And boy, let me tell you, I like this book a lot more (laughs) than Jack of Shadows. Uh, Well, you know, he established the sci-fi 
book imprint Del Rey Books in 77 when he was on his fourth wife. Could you rephrase that, please? (laughs) (laughs) It just took him a little while to to build up some steam, I guess. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. He was also a member of the Trapdoor Spiders. And that's the literary men's only eating, drinking, and arguing society that uh, Asimov modeled his Black Widowers on. Hmm. So it feels kind of like certain contemporary young adult adventure novels because having a 17-year-old doing all of that on the test run of a government military sub does kind of strain credulity a little bit, Uh, especially when he's bringing his dog along. (laughs) You know, and it wasn't necessarily a a military run, but the military wanted to test it to see if they wanted to uh, buy the thing, right? It was being taken over by the military at, at certain points, I guess, because it had its usefulness for them. Yeah, it was a new design, so there, there was that. But, you know, it had a skipper key, and a skipper key is a good sailing dog, so. <laughs> but where did that dog go to the bathroom in the submarine? <laughs> <laughs> they skipper never keys are actually it. really trainable, so probably in the same place the people went. Okay. I, or I, the I, senator's I, pillow. I, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I found this one an interesting book, but it wasn't as resonating with me as it was for you, Bob, and, and possibly Jen. And I think that's either because while it dealt with some you know very current topics for the time, it sort of left itself dated because of that. It, it has a little issue with sci-fi where it can kind of quickly become very resonant with the with the period, but it doesn't not necessarily translate all into the future that it envisions, you know, beyond the future it envisions. And I think, I think that's some of my, my hesitation on in terms of like being able to get into it. I also just, I thought that tonally the characters were all very similar. They are all very competent. The adults are very focused and, you know, they're, uh, they're incredible, you know, achievers at what they do. Everybody except for Don is, you know, relatively ineffective in the end. And he's sort of this wonderkin, like you mentioned, of a 17-year-old who's a scientist, who's a hero, who's a master dog trainer. Um, <laughs> Although, I, admittedly, part of his success comes from the fact that he's so young that the Atlanteans just figure... There is a narrative explanation for it. Exactly, yeah. There, there is kind of a that, that key that unlocks why he's able to um, bypass it, but he's, he's never really treated in the book from the books. I guess the author's perspective is anything, but a very competent sort of heroic figure. Um, And so it's, it's a little bit dissonant, you know, with the, with how he's treated by the Atlanteans and, and how he comes across. And it felt a little bit forced for me. There was a lot I liked about the book, especially the beginning part. I think the first narrative test uh, elements of the sub where they are talking about the relative capabilities of it uh, compared to some of the atomic subs that were for Lester Del Rey, still a future that had not been brought to reality yet. He, he was writing at a time before the first atomic power sub was commissioned, which what I, I actually found kind of interesting was the first atomic sub was the Nautilus, you know, which is a kind of a cool name, you know, for that uh, endeavor. But it, I don't think it was launched until a year after this book was published. So he was, he was very... Well, and they, 
they even mention the Nautilus in, in they the do, book. Yeah. Because it was yeah. being constructed when this was written. So they talk about it as, as being out there already. Yeah. Yeah, it, it had been, I think the atomic power subs of that generation had been out there for a decade or so. So this places it, you know, relatively about a, he's writing about a future that's about a decade later than what he's currently living in. So it's a, it's a very cool sort of, you know, it gets into the details of like how much compression these vehicles can take and sort of the, you know, the historical aspects of some of these subs that when they sunk, they lay on the bottom of the ocean and some of them may have survived and even had people that had some type of, you know, experience after the sub had sunk. And what he does is takes that the next step. You know, if what if there was a, a race of men that had branched off their technology 20,000 years ago and developed independently? And it's kind of a cool inward looking sci-fi rather than kind of the sci-fi of the period that was very focused on space and, you know, the exploration. This is the inner, inner sea, inner depths, you know, sci-fi, which is, uh, which is a neat idea. I thought there was a lot of fantasy in there too. I mean, the, the whole concept of the Atlanteans, I thought that was a little less sci-fi and more fantasy, which kind of led to the whole thing being a little bit more accessible to all readers, especially those of us of the dumber sect. Um, <laughs> 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 I mean, like, I don't know the specifics about say, wiring inside the monitor for a radar system, but I was able to follow what they were talking about with the repairs. Mm -hmm. And so that actually meant a lot for me. I, I was able to just keep going and chewing the book up and not have to stop and, oh, man, this is getting too in-depth. And so I, I thought it went a lot quicker than some of the things we've read in the past. But Again, I'm I'm going to take David's mantle of of being the the slow one here tonight. <laughs> well, I mean, this is everything that that I read as a kid. Having read all the Jules Verne stuff when I was in in grade school, and and just kind of expanded outward from there, something like this just really takes me back. That kind of clean simplicity of 1950s adventure sci-fi as opposed to hard sci-fi for me it's a lot of fun but I, I think the uh the technology one was kind of a an interesting thing to point out because i did so i tried to do some biographical research on lester del rey to see whether <laughs> he had a he had any kind of like you know school that would have lended itself to a technical trade because a lot of you know his contemporaries uh, you know, had either wartime experience where they, you know, they would leverage that into their writing or they had some sort of, you know, background in physics or mathematics or engineering, you know, where they would leverage that as well. I, he is is kind of a mystery because of the way he treated his own autobiography is, or how he pushed himself forward. Lester Del Rey was not his real name. And for many years, I think he was telling people that his birth name was Ramon Felipe San Juan Mario Silio Enrico Smith Heathcourt Brace Sierra y Alvarez del Rey de los Verdes. <laughs> or, or for short, Ramon Felipe Alvarez del Rey. Yes. Right. <laughs> he also claimed that his family was killed in a car accident in 1935, and his sister stepped forward and disputed that, said his name mm -hmm. was, in fact, Leonard Knapp, and the accident he's referring to killed his first wife, but not his parents, brother, or sister. And you gotta wonder how 
tightly hinged someone like that is. And, <laughs> four, and four wives. <laughs> I, honestly, reading all of this on something as simple as Wikipedia, um, reading all of these little details after seeing him pan our last book, I was like, okay, yeah, th- this guy really is an enigma that we just we need to tackle. <laughs> mm-hmm. We need to dig into this one. Um, <laughs> I, I I thought, you know, besides some of the technological things being a little obsolete today, as you were talking, Mark, he also had a lot of concepts that were really timely. I mean, there was the military presence where if they like this, they're going to take it. They're going to take every single bit of the drafts and the blueprints and make it theirs. The senator, or was it he? Was he a senator or a congressman? He was the one. He was a senator, yeah. He was the one who made things even worse at one point. Well, and, that's what they do. Yeah. <laughs> one of the quotes just really stuck with me because it was, men who are afraid always create the situation they're afraid of. I was like, that is a really timely bit of, even if you don't make that political, That that's, um, yeah, prescience. That's the word. Yeah, it really, it. It's interesting because he paints the military in what is ultimately a, a fairly favorable light, but very distrustful of politicians. And I, I kind of wonder if that's a, it's also sort of the background to when he was writing this and the the military's achievements in World War II and, you know, in, in Korea, the conflicts that were going on at the time versus the politicians that would have been, you know, possibly seen as not having led the countries in those situations into the right paths, but the, but you honor the people who are actually executing that. Like the the admiral is a kind of father figure for Don, um, Admiral Holler, and he's he's one of these you know people that that gets the situation. He's the sort of the containing force for the politics and the the Senator Kennedy or Congressman Kennedy, you know Kennedy, I guess not Kennedy. Although there's a little, I wonder if there's some association there in the author's mind that does show that sort of distrustful nature of men who've gone past their prime and you know especially the ones who um when they run out of talk that's they don't know what else to do um they're not sort of the men of action uh that's that's depicted with the the other characters the other the other thing i found with the book is uh, it was very fast paced you know very easy to read and get into the story especially the you know, the introductory test runs that the sub's doing. I felt the conclusion was a little bit abrupt and it seems rushed to me. And I, I don't know if you guys found the, the same thing. Well, it was Del Rey rushed, but it wasn't Margaret St. Clair rushed. <laughs> <laughs> Relatively okay then. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, it's it's one of those things where you get to the end and you would love maybe eight to ten more pages of epilogue about what continues happening and instead it just sort of ends with and this is what we're going to do and you're left wondering if it succeeds and what happens and that's always kind of a kind of a problem when an author chooses an ending point that i disagree with (laughs) (laughs) well it, it seems to be a product of its time though a lot of the books have that kind of leave the rest to your imagination ending 
Also, if you look at the majority of the books from, not all, but if you look at the majority of the books from the period, you're looking at science fiction and fantasy novels that are like 115, 120, maybe 150 pages, as opposed to today when they're like 400, 600, 800, 1,000. So these authors were, were certainly focusing on the story that they were there to tell, and they were cutting all the additional dead weight right out. The publishing houses probably had strict caps on that, too, at least back then. It is interesting that, like Mark was saying about the age and education uh, difference between our peoples, Del Rey was projecting that this society underwater, nobody was educated until they were adults because their brains couldn't handle it beforehand is what they were putting forth, I believe. Yeah, something of the sort. But they also had this really weird family structure that was just kind of a a loose patriarchal society. And your birth father isn't necessarily your father. It could be just somebody else in your family. It was really – that part was a little bit tough for me to to follow. I think it was because, I mean, he he didn't go into the details. And I don't know if that's because he wanted – to leave it up to the reader's imagination and it was or he was sort of visualizing what Don's experience was and he wanted to present that to the reader or he just didn't want to get into the details because it would you know sort of quickly lead to you know odd questions in the reader's mind and and I kind of feel like it was a little bit more the latter it, it, it was he just he wanted to present it as a of with a sense of vagueness that if he started sketching it out or outlining it it would sort of break down the society, you know, this utopian society or what's presented as a utopian society, um, you know, but if he tried to shore that concept up, I, you know, I, th- I think maybe he felt there would be some critical critical views of it in, in some way or another. I don't know. I think we're suffering from a little bit of ethnocentrism here because while in, in the U.S., you know, you are raised by your parents for the most part. There's a lot of cultures where you are raised by a relative as opposed to your parents. So to me, that it, it that wasn't even a, a bump on my radar so much. You know, this is this is my son. This is not my son. Now you are my son. I'm taking responsibility for you. Uh, I I thought it was really kind of cool when they talked about how their economy worked, and they're like, "Yes, the economy works great down here because there's only twenty thousand people." Try that on the surface. <laughs> mm-hmm. Probably not so much. And you know, that's pretty much how how pure communism works. It works really great in small in small <laughs> groups, uh, generally much smaller than twenty thousand people, and uh, not so good on a on a large scale. So <laughs> I think in, Del Rey in, was giving a lot of credit. In bubble societies, it works really well. Yes. Yes. Well, but the, yeah, once they once they get that first cup of coffee, though, everything will change because <laughs> everybody's going to get addicted and they won't have any way of getting it and they'll go to war. I just I thought that was I, I was thinking of you, Jen, when I was reading, you know, the fact that Muggins, um, one of the characters didn't yeah. you know, went without a cup of coffee for 30 years. And I was poor you know, dude. Poor yeah. Dude. <laughs> Jen would have killed the entire city by that. Point. I, I would have taken all the bubble suits. But, you know, they did have this really cool dog god mythology, and I I almost wish they'd gone into that a little bit more and give yeah, us the, given us the full history of it. But I guess that's another thing where 
use your imagination and and go from there. I don't know. I think by not giving us more information, it felt a little bit too coincidental, a little a little too author's fiat. Well, you know, there's no way you're going to get out of this except for the fact that you brought a dog and they worship a dog and they're waiting for the second coming of dog. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, can, it, can, I, can we get some context, maybe a little back history on why, you know, were they catching like old reruns of Rin Tin Tin? What, what, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it, I thought that was a little bit brushed Oh, it was it was in there, inserted in there, clearly as a device, a plot device, and you know the Shep gets a lot of attention in the in the novels more well, he's than a I, he's a skipper key more more so than I would have preferred. You know they they are known as the little black devils, which I I kind of found as a kind of fond nickname for them, and the, that mythology was intriguing because it's not so much when I when they were first describing it, I was thinking, oh, this is kind of cool because. They are taking a concept that was brought from the beginnings of their tribe. You know, some incident happened and it's becoming a game of telephone over the, the, the course of the centuries that they and millennia that they developed. And, you know, the, the statue is sort of vaguely described when they, they go into the plaza as this sort of monstrosity, you know, of like different creatures. And I was thinking, wow, that's kind of a, an interesting view of reflections of, you know, how people visualize the horrors of the deep, they are visualizing the horrors of the land, right? Yeah. And it, it's okay. kind of a kind of a neat concept, but they didn't really, t- he didn't really go much further than that. They just saw the dog and they said, oh, we worship you, you know, now, which is kind of, <laughs> it deflated it a little bit. Okay, that's fair. Uh, well, speaking of horrors of the land and horrors of the deep, should we move over to things to stat? Ooh, yeah. All right, <laughs> hit us, what you got? Uh, well, right off the bat, you know, the, the mutant or evolved ichthyosaurs that could actually breathe underwater, even though ichthyosaurs couldn't. Um, so so big, now fully aquatic dinosaurs. And, and weren't they on. kind of trained? Well, yeah, they were, they were used as beasts of burden and all sorts of things. And I immediately go to, you know, if you're running a, an MCC campaign and you want to draw upon like some of those commandy issues where they're going under the depths and you start playing in that, that aquatic realm, that's a perfect thing to, to throw in. I mean, yes, the, the bubble suits are kind of cool, but come on, you know, just put a, put a telepathic auto cannon wearing moose on the back of a mutant ichthyosaurus in a bubble suit and ah it's it'd be awesome um sorry i the dog whistle you know stat up because of, of the way it was used the dog whistle was really kind of neat and if you think about it you could write up because of how a dog whistle works it's just working on frequencies that that humans can't hear well, maybe there's other creatures that use use tones like that to communicate. So maybe in your game it's not a dog whistle. Maybe you know it's a it's a goblin whistle, and maybe they yeah, use it really to cool communicate. Idea. Of course, there's the Atlantean stun guns because you can never have too many non lethal weapons. 
mostly because players won't use them anyway. But you know, because <laughs> they're not lethal. <laughs> I, I you could beat someone to death with a stun gun, though. So people pick them up. And I was thinking Atlanteans uh, as a race's class. They were different Ooh. enough because they had diverged from the main lines of humanity. I thought that might be kind of interesting to do. Hmm. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, I like that. That's what I had. What about you, Jen? Well, again, I wouldn't mind hearing more about the original dog god. I don't think it was even given a name. There's a lot of uh, arbitrary grasping out there. Statting up the Triton itself could be interesting for any number of uh, modules. And the bathosuits, the front cover of the paperback that we were using, at first I thought that was the man in the bubble that they had seen. And then I realized, okay, no, that that's dumb, Jen. No, the bathosuit is more of this big, huge contraption that you climb into in order to go underwater. Like you would get into a spacesuit outside your ship if you had to go out and do repairs in deep space or whatnot. And, and interestingly enough, much like the deep diving suits they use today. Right. Only they're they're not called bathosuits anymore. That was actually an arbitrary term, as I discovered looking through all this stuff from bathymetry, which just refers to the ocean's depth relative to sea level, etc. Now it's suddenly... Well, also, it was a variation on bathysphere, because bathysphere was a type of device that was used in the period to go under, you know, the big big domes, the hole in the bottom where air pressure would keep you from flooding. Right. And it only had like 90 minutes worth of air to it or something. So I thought it would be fairly simple to work the bathysuits into MCC or Crawljammer as either a weird type of armor or another museum piece. And you could include mechanics for how quickly the air runs out if it is used as armor. And um, just as a side note, I'd like to offer some bonus luck points to asthmatics who don't walk away from the table at that point, because I was <laughs> literally holding my breath during these passages. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little painful. But maybe that's one of the things that I I considered so immersive because oh man, no that that's a very real effect that it's having on the reader. So Yeah. What you got, Mark? I like that when you said the Triton, I hadn't really thought of statting that up, but then you, you the idea of maybe making it into a Star Blazers type spaceship for Crawljammer Ooh. is kind of appealing. Because, you know, that's that's sort of where I was envisioning, you know, maybe these protective bubbles could be, you know, part of that crawl jammer scene, you know, that provides a breathable atmosphere, you know, for some of these ships. And, you know, you reset, you know, the underwater into outer space or even maybe the maybe the, the underwater in that case is you're exploring a gas giant and you have to have oh, man. some sort of protection and your your submarine is a submersible that's on Jupiter type exploration which is um, you know you could put that kind of context or overlay into it which is kind of a neat idea you know I mentioned the dog god statue you know being the idea of well what would a an Atlantean you know think of as a monster from from the the horrors of the land I think you could go lots of different sort of variations on that and come up with some creative mixtures of animals it would be very cool i like that you know bob you mentioned the mutated or evolved ichthyosaur mm -hmm. that that reminded me a lot of the hierodestine uh, you know novels we, mm -hmm. you know, talking about some of the odd creatures that were that he encountered in oh, uh, in the oceans that were not they were sort of vaguely described but you were clearly 
you know, part of that setting, the, the, the giants that were sort of revived after the world ended. So it had a post-apocalyptic feel to me. Well, and, and um, yeah, Mr. Dinosaur Crawl Classics here. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that would actually, yeah, we need to, I need to write up the Dinosaur Dinosaur Crawl Classics now. <laughs> there you go. You're welcome. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and and you could inject that creature into any time a uh, a party's traveling by boat. It doesn't necessarily have to be underwater. You know, now you have a a scene that inspires them being attacked by a whale or an ichthyosaur or a you know some sort of uh, creature from the depths that rams the boat and is under the control of some other you know underwater sea creature. You know, like an Atlantean. It's it's implied in the novels. It's not really clear whether the whale is directly under the control of the Atlanteans. I sort of thought it was, you know. Yeah, I think I, I'm with you on that. I, I agree. Yeah, and, and you could you could do, you could play with that concept a lot about, you know, this racist class, or if they're monsters, you know, they have this sort of Aquaman power that takes the natural creatures of the depths and makes them into sort of horrifying challenges. You know, the player, the party, you may not necessarily be expecting. Um, so I, I kind of like that idea of stabbing something like that up as an encounter where you could you know just drop that into any any sort of locale where the the players have to travel by boat or even if they're going underwater. Plus, if you ever want to separate you know a, a fighter from his plate mail, just put him on a boat and sink it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I didn't think about that. <laughs> so oh, so, poor so fighters. Mean. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's what that's what I had. This is this, it, this was, didn't inspire me quite as much as the other ones. I, I don't know if that's because of the sci-fi elements or it tended not to lend itself to a lot of exploration. There wasn't a lot of spells or magic that came across directly because it's technology, you know, and that that's more of a Carl Jammer MCC vibe to me. And and so I I think that's where you start looking at where you could expand the content from this. Makes perfect sense. Although I know that you have a couple cool audio suggestions here, so I'm going to bump us over to the props and audio set, and I'm I'm going to throw out topographical maps to represent the the trench and the ridges with that just slippery, silty sand that the Triton kept rolling and and sliding off of, and a little bit of. Well, th- this is kind of what you see because you know bringing in a full radar setup is a bit much or sonar. I wonder if you, sonar. I w- sorry, not radar. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you could do some sort of innovation on a hex crawl, but make it a topographical underwater map. I don't know how mm-hmm. it would be different. It just it just like what you, your suggestion just sort of made me think. You know, an undersea hex crawl might have some different variations because you're talking about depth as well as you know these. Uh, undersea uh, elevations and things like that and it might be kind of a cool oh that, that's know, exactly that where i was yeah that, that's oh, exactly cool. yeah. what i was thinking because the different colorations delineate the different depths as opposed to when you're looking at a hex or a topographical map of land the higher points are lighter and the darker points are the lower ground or or vice versa depending on your artist or uh, your mapper. You could also throw out some fragments or have them find fragments of uh, blueprints or naval construction plans. Oh, yeah. And if you don't give them a whole lot of hints to go off of, they'll create the hex crawl for you. So I kind of liked that idea. And of all things, the soundtrack to Kong Skull Island 
just really kind of hit that vibe because everything starts off from this little island that's under military control and kind of goes mm, sideways from there. Cool. Okay, so I, you've got one or two on your list, Mark, that I'm really interested in. The first one I thought of was, you know, a prop for the table where, you know, the crystals that the Atlanteans used are kind of key to their technologies. And you could play around with that, you know, where you have different kinds of crystals that the players may have to find the properties of. And they do so by, you know, handling the ones that are at the tables and sort of a, a maybe a discovery type um, mechanic where, you know, some of the crystals produce good effects, some of them don't. So I had the, I had a kind of a concept in my mind that, you know, the crystals could be physical props and you might integrate that somehow into, um, you know, the player's decisions and choices. And, and of course, if they find the right crystals, they are then, you know, sort of latched in or, or looking for, um, you know, that is as a, a way of furthering, you know, the party's capabilities. Maybe they go on and hunt for that particular type of crystal, or maybe there's only one of them and they have to trade it around the table in order to, you know, figure out uh, this like a limited quantity type thing. And it's, you know, show me who has the crystal so that I can, you know, tell what the spell effect is going to be. And so it's like a magic shield in that case. Uh, so I kind of like that idea. A little bit of purple planet in there too. Uh, yeah, that's right. Because yeah, you, you finding the shards. Yeah, I, I need to talk to Harley about that one. <laughs> I I thought it was a really kind of the part of the novel that intrigued me a lot was you know the underwater um, submarine testing and the you know the sonar descriptions and when they're looking for objects you know they're obviously sending out pings. I immediately thought of the movie Das Boot, mm. where mm. it's a very iconic sort of sound mm-hmm. where the, the ping is is both a it's like a lifesaver, but it's also a terrifying element in that movie when yes. they are trying to remain hidden, you know, from the attack uh, destroyers that are dropping depth charges on them. And I, I think you could really heighten some tension if a party is trying to remain unobserved and they're doing some sort of clandestine travel in a submarine or in a spaceship. And there's this ping effect that you do a soundtrack or a you know that you can you can reproduce and it and they don't know they first of all you know it would take them in in the context of those who might know something about it as players they may have to then say is this the same thing is it representing a spellcaster pinging me for magic detection is it uh, you know or is it a creature that's using its its sonar type ability to try to find me and so i think you could do that and really add a lot to the atmosphere and just just basically you're everybody's knowledge of that movie or that similar type of submarine movie uh, because it's used to other effects and to that same effect in other movies. I think you could recreate that at the table for a number of different purposes. I love the idea that detect magic, you know, gives a ping to the people as it hits them uh, or at least like casters or sensitives that would, that would really change that spell a bit. It would make, it would build a lot of tension and Oh, I, that's, I th- mm-hmm. I, I, that's really groovy. I, I like that. Um, the last idea I had, I, I think we all had soundtracks. My soundtrack was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's really because it's a very majestic soundtrack. And I think that this novel sort of lends itself to that. Um, you could play, you know, for uh, for dramatic fights that are taking place with uh, underwater creatures or, you know, with with space battles. I think it, it's it's very adaptable to both of those kind of genres. 
um, as long as you skip whale of a tail, then uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then I think you're. I swear by my tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Bob? Prop wise, I didn't have a whole lot prop wise, and I'm ashamed to to say I hadn't thought of just you know, bringing crystals to the table, but. The idea of bringing a dog whistle to the table just kind of stuck with me because I've never actually seen a dog whistle in real life. I've seen them on television. I've never seen, held, touched, shopped for a dog whistle. Uh, so that that sort of, to You've me... You've also never had a dog. You are correct. <laughs> uh, I was lucky to be allowed to have fish. So, you know, fact, the other disposable yes. pet. But when it came to music, I, I immediately started going to the 60s and 70s kind of aquatic shows because just like uh, space sounded a certain way when I was a kid, so did underwater adventure. So things like the theme from The Man from Atlantis or some of the Irwin Allen stuff, you know, Sequest, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Land of the Giants, The Towering Inferno, or some of the, the remakes from even the 80s and 90s, like Sequest DSV and Sequest 2032, where they jump into the future. Those those kind of things, for me, that's, that's the sound of undersea adventure. It's that kind of weird, high-pitched synth stuff going. Of course, if you're more... Uh, uh, metal and uh, speed inclined, there's uh, Lost Soul from Atlantis, The New Beginning. And uh, I think that would satisfy the people that uh, for whom underwater adventure did not sound like high-pitched synths when they were children. And and that <laughs> reminds me, I can't believe I forgot the creature from the Black Lagoon. Da-da-da! Oh. I, I mean... <laughs> It's such, it's, it's such it's a great thing. It's classic, too, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and it's yeah. got the underwater fight scenes, even. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a good one. Okay. Yay. I, I scooped up from behind. Got it. <laughs> so, for existing DCC inspirations, how, how would you reskin some of these features, Mark? So, with reading this novel, it reminded me a little bit of um abraham merritt's books uh, like the moon pool and dwellers in the mirage both of them involve sort of journeys to these uh hidden kingdoms you know especially moon pool where you know the the journey is into the sort of the, the journey to the center of the earth and in in the parallel there for me is obviously harley stroh's um you know journey to the center of Aerith and the related module the lost city of baracko both of those are um you know, very thematically similar, I think, in, in to to um, attack from Atlantis, and you could you could reskin those to be an underwater journey instead of a journey into um, to the land. If you wanted to really get those sea elements, um, I think that would, that'd be kind of a cool way of transporting or transplanting those into a different environment that would let you build off of some of the things that we talked about for attack from Atlantis. And both of them are really great. You know, uh, I, I think, you know, players should definitely check out um, the the Journey to the Center Aerith, um, you know, a setting because I think Harley does a, a number of things mechanically that makes it interesting. You know, it's it's very evocative, like I said, of some of the Abraham Merritt's work and some of the other inner journeys into the Earth that inspired him. So I like both those. Crawl Jammer is a perfect sort of inverse of this, like we mentioned 
um, you could take this and make it a space um, exploration and the lost city is on a moon or it's in the middle of a you know storm torn gas giant and there's you know obviously parallels to how pressure and you know the survivability of those environments that you could um, directly you know put into into like a crawl jammer setting um, so I like that idea a lot there's a little bit of black sun death crawl um, you know in terms of you know, the the escape from a a terror that's you know in the center of the earth or in the center of the ocean you know there, there's a little bit of the age of the atomic overlord that's thematically you know the, in this case the warring parties are more contemporary and you know maybe that that sort of MacGuffin of you know the technology that you have to you know bring back is related to the crystals that will once they are you know, brought they can contain the sort of the, the explosion device that happens at the end of Oct- Atomic Overlord. So you might be able to um, leverage some of that uh, and integrate the uh, you know the, the stories and the technology that they're from Tech from Atlantis into that setting as well. Uh, those came to mind. Um, kind of curious to what you thought, Bob and Jen, uh, with regards to other modules. For me, Tower of the Black Pearl feels like almost something that you could run with a more vanilla version of Umerica or MCC, something not yet set in the far, far future. And you could use that as a flashback piece, kind of setting a piece of history for one of those campaigns. So I guess I'm I'm big on on flashbacks. You, You can read players' history about your campaign world forever, and they'll remember snippets, but if they play it, it becomes real. And uh, that that is really what leapt out to me. I mean, there's there's just all of these little facets to the story that seem like you could be running this as an adventure set before, you know, an apocalypse, before a disaster. And then if the players don't succeed, there's the root cause of the disaster. And if not... They're glimpsing a piece of how the world nearly ended but didn't. And so it broadens that mystery. You know, there was the Atlanteans and they were going to create a war on the earth, but we stopped yeah, but we saw how that was stopped. We've 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 seen these films or we've seen these these holocrons and we know we know that wasn't it. So what really did happen? I think that using something like that would be a great way to to push the history forward. That's a cool nice. idea. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like along those lines, Moon Slaves of the Cannibal Kingdom feels like the Volcanic Island prequel for me. Mm. And, yeah. you know, along those lines, um, you could even extend that to Enter the Dagon. Yeah, maybe, maybe Enter the Dagon is what happened after the city rose again. For for more of a direct approach, I could totally see this underground city as, you know, a dried out above ground discovery somewhere on the purple planet, as well as like uh, the lost city of Baraco, as you mentioned, Mark. Um, you could also fit it into John Mars' sunken city setting from the sunken city omnibus, Purple Source. Oh, most certainly. Uh, you wouldn't yeah, even have to think about that. But yeah. Right, right. <laughs> uh, any module that has a bit of archaeology or library discovery, um, you know, akin to the MCC museum stuff. But um, Atomic Overlord is a really good example of this because there's a, there's parts where they are actually 
being schooled in some of the historical moments. And anything with that little bit, they could start discovering some of the equipment used, whether it be metal like the Triton or the uh, the bubble suits. And I have to say that this kind of has the perfect feel for null singularity, especially when Don was inside the bath of suit. That was <laughs> yeah, that was dark, man. That that was yeah, if you yeah. Run, that was beyond yeah, you've got black X amount of death time. <laughs> you need to start. You need to start back at at at, at this point in time in case you don't make it. And- yeah, yeah, it, it it actually exceeded black sun death crawl for me and and went null singularity. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. you know but this. This didn't have dead babies being used as weapons, so I don't know if it exceeds Black Sun Death Crawl for me. But it would have been more I than a D three. <laughs> Fair enough. So that's going to bring us to our DCC feature for the show: "The Sea Queen Escapes" by Michael Curtis. Evil lurks beneath the ocean. For years it has slumbered, but now it rises once again, threatening to wash over the surface world like a monstrous wave. Only a handful of stalwarts stand between the nefarious schemes of the deep and a world drowned in sorrows. But first they must navigate a wizard's sanctum, a magical prison, and the most unusual dungeon they've ever faced. Can they stem the tide in time, or will they lose themselves forever to the sea change curse? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I gotta say, this is a good one, but I've never actually run it in its entirety. I've taken snippets and pieces and used them into my campaign. I think it's hysterical that this adventure is famed for its use of the isosceles trapezoid. Uh, <laughs> there are There are reviews dedicated to the fact that this adventure uses an isosceles trapezoid. Go, Mr. Curtis. <laughs> I think it'd be really easy to let the Atlanteans of the novel mutate over the centuries between their their time to the great disaster and campaign present. So if you were to reskin the Sequin Escapes as an MCC adventure, the Atlantean tie would be so solid and would, would just totally, it, it would just totally rock the theme, I think. Well, come on, lamprey men. They're kind exactly. of all they are. <laughs> right, but they're, but the lamprey men of, you know, are the result of mutation from whatever spilled into the ocean during the great disaster. Yeah. If you think, if you think the, uh, the nuclear disaster in Japan was bad when seawater was flushing in, imagine what some sort of twisted chronoplasm reactor spilling into the oceans during the great disaster would do. Well, it's funny because you mentioned earlier, uh, using the dog whistle and maybe it doesn't have to be a dog whistle. Maybe it's something else, you know, a, a different type of instrument that maybe summons a different type of animal. And, uh, we got that here. <laughs> true. Very true. I mean, it starts out with a really great premise. You know, the, the quote unquote princess stolen from the sea people. It's an excellent ruse to get people into the water. So if you need just the beginning intro for for your own campaign or whatnot, there you go. This was a, a this was an opportunity for me to actually read this one. I, this is the first time I I read it or played it. You know, I've never never had it run for me or run it, 
And so it's it's another one of those discoveries of just how good Michael Curtis, you know, is and was. It's like an early gem Yay! from the from the DCC, you know, sort of beginning years era. And it's it's really neat. It's really fascinating. And, and there's a whole mini setting in the appendix of the reprint version, I believe. I don't know if that was part of the original, but the you know the version that I have oh, has yeah. the the sunken king. Yeah, the sunken kingdom of Rue. Oh, nice. Which is uh, which has been, I guess, part of the expanded content that may have been produced Arg. recently. I need and to so get the, that. <laughs> it's, it's it's another sort of Michael Curtis take on. The frozen north, you know, but the parallel here is it's the the underground sea or the underwater sea kingdom, and so um, you know it's it's just rich in terms of ideas and mapping out, and they made me think of that Facebook thread that I think uh, was going on about what are the different settings that DCC has has sort of codified in in the different works. I, I don't know if this one was mentioned, but no, I don't think it was. It's, oh, it's yeah. definitely it's. It's definitely worth reading, getting the reprint for. Yeah. Wow. Um, I did notice that we have some great resources here, like rules on underwater combat and underwater casting. Because Fireball is very different underwater. Well. uh, (laughs) So is Lightning Bolt. One of of my favorite corollaries from this book that I I didn't even realize till I reread it is that you can actually find something akin to those jellyfish suits or the, the bubble suits. They're they're mm. kind of this uh, thin, dried up, gelatinous kind of thing that may well become bubble suits essentially, and so it is possible to cast underwater. I, I'm not going to give any more spoilers than that. I'm not going to tell you where to find them, but um, <laughs> I'm also not going to tell you how the sea change curse works because if you haven't played it, you're in for a treat, and. <laughs> I, I almost kind of want to run this one, but I also don't want my players to hate me. So uh, uh, That's never stopped me. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that dilemma, Mr. Curtis. That that could be cool. It could be, could be meat, could be cake. But you also get the chance to ride on the back of a giant turtle, and that should please, like, every Terry Pratchett fan in the world, right? <laughs> that's a great cartoon, ar- yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay, end dork session here. this is one of those cases where we we didn't go picking through the the adventures at the last minute after we read the book to say okay which one ties in best and and okay i'm kind of curious about that when we took this approach bob you selected this adventure if i remember correctly what were some of the thoughts that you had in terms of you know why this fit in well with this novel or why it might oh jen totally picked this module (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I am guilty for both choices. I did both of them uh, ahead of time and simply based on really just the the premise and the uh, the title, if you will, the covers. Um, very much like, you know, our first episode, we took the very first module and paired it with the first book and as it turned out it actually worked a little bit better than expected so i knew i think these match up this one this one works so well it really does once you once you read through the adventure and especially like i said if you go into the sunken kingdom setting that's uh that's part of the the new uh, effect and i don't even have that part so that was a bonus right (laughs) Uh, I, (laughs) Right. i figured they would mesh because of the settings but i didn't realize how many little tiny 
gems and, and pieces inside would actually make this such a great fit. So if you don't mind, you know, some strange uh, technology being in your DCC game, throw the Triton and a handful of humans and maybe a dumb dog if you want. Little black devil dog. <laughs> uh, uh, well, that okay. To be fair, this is geared for level three PCs, so maybe don't throw the farmers with their livestock on a boat in this one, or make it an actual devil dog. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, the, it's the familiar at this point. <laughs> Familiars, they're those are acceptable, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So how many hit points do you take if your if your familiar skipper key falls overboard? <laughs> Write in and let us know. <laughs> okay, on that note of silliness, I think we got a little bit of business to take care of here with our uh, road crew and convention shoutouts. We do indeed. The new year has begun and so too has Sanctum Secorum Super Number One Contest. Test, test. Here's your chance to win a copy of Matthew Goyfon's ultra-rare adventure Super Number 1 Food Tower. The adventure was specifically written to be run at North Texas RPG Con in 2015 and was only ever available there. Now we offer you, yes you, the opportunity to get this wonderful bit of DCC ephemera for free. February's contest theme is Character Classes. Create a DCC-compatible character class and submit it as your entry into our drawing. Submit your class with an original piece of art and receive a second entry into the drawing and a later entry into our art drawing further down in the year. The more character classes you enter, the greater your chances of winning. Only one lucky winner chosen at random will receive a copy of 50-Foot Ferrozine Module Number 1 Super Number 1 Food Tower 2015 North Texas RPG Convention Edition. Along with a card stock sheet of four pre-gen characters for the adventure. In addition, one runner-up will receive a surprise item from the Sanctum Secorum's Prize Closet of Mystery. Email your entries to the hub at sanctum.media. <laughs> and we've we have gotten some very cool entries for the monsters this month in January, which yes. is very nice. Yes, keep them coming. So we are the Keepers of Mysteries, but who are the Guardians of Secrets? You can be. Our community events page is live and events are filtering in. Send us your upcoming events for inclusion. And once you have submitted a few successfully run events, you will be inducted into the roles of the Guardians of Secrets. And that means you can enter your events directly onto the calendar. Members will periodically receive exclusive items for their tables, such as last year's free RPG Day companion and other super secret benefits. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Timothy Drennan is running a bi-weekly open table Thursday night DCC game at Geek Out in Burleson, Texas. Jeff Bernstein continues running DCC RPG at Games Plus in Mount Prospect, Illinois. You can find Jeff online or check with the store for more details. You can find Judge Julian Burnick and the Minneapolis DCC RPG Society next month at the 26th Annual Con of the North being held February 16th through 18th at the Crown Plaza Minneapolis West. 
Julian, John Dahlstrom, John Carnes, and Gary Fortune will be running DCC, MCC, X-Crawl, Unmerica, Nowhere City Nights, and more. A big shout-out to our new friends over at Cromcast, a weird fiction podcast. Season 6 of the Cromcast is covering the adventures of Fofford and the Grey Mouser. So as you anxiously await the release of DCC Lankmar, give those shows a listen. And it's a no-brainer, but... You can find so, so many of our beloved community members running games at GaryCon in March. DCC, MCC, America, Nowhere City Nights, X-Crawl, DCC Lankmar. What, DCC Dying Earth. What? And, and what was that, that other silly one? Uh, something with a, a tournament? Um Cyborg oh, Commandos. Cyborg Commando, which is not DCC, but yes, the first the first ever three round tournament for Cyborg Commando is being run at Gary Con Ten. We even have original game art by uh, Jeff D as a prize. Very nice, run by Keeper of Mystery Bob and others. Uh- <laughs> and others. <laughs> and yes, yes, we we can't leave our others out. So, yes, GaryCon. And, of course, GaryCon will be held in beautiful Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, March 8th through 11th this year. In addition to the lovely contest we are holding, if you would like to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine, we would, of course, love to see what sort of things you have created based on your Appendix N reading. Remember that we have quite a few things in our prize closet to give away in return for contributions, we've got zines, modules, even some great Appendix N books for you. And if you are running Road Crew games, drop us a line to let us know. You can submit your events or creations to us at thehub at sanctum.media or find us on the regular social media sites. Yeah, I know, still no LO. Even better, join the <laughs> Guardians of Secrets and keep an eye out for future topics and we can include your material in the show companion. In the meantime, if you are enjoying the show, drop us an email, comment on the podcast, help us by posting a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help new listeners find the podcast and by default, find more DCC. So we hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening. Have a great night, guys. Good night. Thanks, everyone. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us next time when the Sanctum Secorum opens to reveal Clark Ashton Smith's The Powder of Hyperborea. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2018.